We turn in the Word of God to Hebrews 13. I read deliberately the verses before. What exactly do you believe about God? Very simple question, but a very important question. Which leads us to ask, how does that belief concerning God shape your life? Because that is here before you as well. You see, the questions arise because of the construction of the section. In verses 28 and 29, Paul exhorts you to serving God with the pointed declaration about God. Our God is a consuming fire. It's that pointed declaration that is pivotal between chapter 12 and chapter 13. So everything revolves around that distinctive belief about God. It's as if Paul says, what do you believe about God? You say you believe this about God, our God is a consuming fire. And you claim that shapes your life because of verse 28 and chapter 13. But is the shaping of your life this shape? Does your life look like this? And you see how the Word of God makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes it soothes our fears. God comes and he says, fear not, little flock. He calms us and soothes us. But other times the Word of God comes, takes you by the throat and says, now what exactly are you doing in your life? Maybe it takes us by the collar, not the throat. But sometimes that's the way it feels like. You say you believe in God. What impact is that making on your life? So we look at chapter 13, verses 1 to 3 under this heading. Proving saving faith. Proving saving faith. We sometimes credit atheists with less intelligence than they have. Sometimes atheists are more clever than we realize. Because what an atheist looks for in a Christian is very simple. Authenticity. The atheist wants to know, when I look at you, I hear what you say, but if you truly believe what you say, the scary thing is, I expect to see it in your life. Because if it's not there, then I can dismiss all that you claim about God. So in many ways, we are all sort of on view, on display, 
as the world passes by and says, there is a Christian. Let's ask them, do you believe the God of the Bible? And we say, our God is a consuming fire. All right then. How does it shape your life? It gets scary, doesn't it? It's meant to be. Let's look then at these three verses. First of all, kindness. Paul says, God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. The chapter divisions came later as a handy reference tool for us. But it's not actually there. So the sentence continues. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. So this speaks of relationships within the church. And the word I'm sure you know is that word Philadelphia. Uh, not the city, but it is a word to describe what he is telling you. 2 Peter 1, 7, it's translated brotherly kindness. So I took kindness as a heading rather than love because, well, I don't want you to get sidetracked by the word love. I want you rather to focus on the essence, which is kindness. Five things arise out of this sentence. Firstly, when he says, let brotherly love continue, it can be disrupted. The word let is a command. Do not allow anything, he says, to disrupt it, to break it. So we immediately take that command, we apply it now to ourselves in this congregation, and we ask, well, is there anyone in this congregation you're not speaking to? Can you sit at the Lord's table if it isn't sorted out? You immediately begin to see the ramifications with this command. It can be disrupted. And we are to ensure it isn't disrupted. Secondly, it is a mark of salvation. In John 13, verse 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. How are the Saviour's disciples, his disciples, to be known if ye have loved one to another? Now this does not mean that the disciples all had this wonderful uh, relationship. There were times they argued amongst themselves. There were times they disputed amongst themselves. But other times they got some weird and strange ideas and had to be corrected and so on. But the bottom line is, here's the bottom line. It's a mark of salvation. And if we turn to 1 John, which is similar to 1 John 3 and verse 14, we know, what do we know? You see, there are things that every Christian knows. And if they don't know, they should be told. That's what preaching really does. It ensures that every generation knows that which is common 
amongst all of us. We, all of us, he says, know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. How do you know you are a Christian? Well, the common answer amongst all of the Lord's people, there's nothing sophisticated and difficult here. And I say to the children, you can know this. You're supposed to know it as well as all the adults. We all know this, he says. Here's a mark. And thirdly, following immediately and directly on from that, it is a common Christian teaching. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 9. But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. So he says, because everyone knows this, I don't need to write a treatise on it. It's a common teaching amongst the Lord's people. It is a good thing, friends, when all Christians know the same things. And the astonishing thing that we have experienced, I think, in our generation, and it's not unique to our generation, and that is the failure of ministers to teach everything that's in the Word of God. This is why you see you know, in church history, congregation calls a minister and he's there for 50, 60 years. Not three years and he's moving on. You know, when you read the histories of congregation, fascinating thing just to get a pen and paper and write down all the ministers, how long they stayed. So that one generation after another grows up under that ministry. But everybody's on the move, certainly, in our present age. Another startling thing is that some seem to think, well, we need to hear something new. Paul says, well, you don't need to hear something new. It is enough to know that you all know the same things. Is that not enough? It's a wonderful thing that all of the Lord's people know all of these things. You yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And fourthly, it is what Christ did. This is what the Lord himself did. And Paul has already alluded to this in Hebrews 2. Verse 10, for it became him, for whom are all things. Now there's a sentence and a half, isn't it? There's a grand subject. Everything exists for the Lord. For whom are all things? And by whom are all things? Everything that exists, exists because the Lord made it. In bringing many sons on the glory, so he has made everything 
And from the midst of that is a people who belong to him. He calls them sons, bringing many sons on the glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause? He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Where's that from? I hope you're saying to yourself, why, that's a psalm. What psalm is it? Well, you have a margin, I hope, continue. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. So the Savior has loved us. And he has loved us to the extent that he calls us brethren. He took humanity to be made like unto his brethren. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. You say, how do I know the Savior loved me? And you say, look at the incarnation. Did he not take human flesh? How do I know he loved me? You say, look at the cross. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. But the Saviour's love, real, true, astonishing, incredible love for us, weak, pathetic, helpless, hopeless, sinful beings. And the Saviour loved us. And fifthly, it is one of the things unshaken. It says in Hebrews 12, 27, Yet once more signify the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Let brotherly love continue. So kindness, one of the things that shall remain. Secondly, in verse 2, hospitality. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. This is also within the Christian community. Here I think, on a rare occasion, I will use an historic illustration, purely for the benefit of the children, so that you will remember what this verse simply means. There's a very famous incident. It's recorded in William Taylor's book on the Scottish pulpit, also found in Andrew Thompson's work on Rutherford. Well, on one occasion, Usher, that grand character from Armagh, made his way up from England into Scotland, intending to catch a boat at the coast of 
Scotland to come over to Ulster. But he took a detour. He wanted to hear Rutherford at Anwar. But Usher did something strange. He disguised himself as a beggar, rented a man's at Anwar. Samuel Rutherford answered the door, saw this beggar in front of him, and of course, this person asking for a bed for the night. And Rutherford, reminding himself of Hebrews 13, 2, invited him in. Well, after they were fed, Rutherford, because it was late in the Saturday evening, went to a study to just look over things for the Sabbath day. Mrs. Rutherford gathered some of the servants together who were there, and of course, the beggar was gathered too. As she catechized her servants and then turned to the beggar and asked him directly, how many commandments are there? He said, 11. She was astonished. Later that evening, she said to her husband in bed, about this beggar, he thinks there are 11 commandments. How appalling. Well, the very next morning, Rutherford, as usual, Sabbath morning, rose very early, went off to that wooded area beside the church building for his morning devotions and was shocked to see somebody in his place was there before him. He listened. This person was praying. He challenged them who they were. And lo and behold, it was the beggar who then revealed himself to be Usher. So Rutherford pressed upon him to take the morning service. So they went in. Rutherford took a seat beside his wife and Usher began the service. And then came, of course, to that part of the service. He announced his text. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. And Rutherford leaned over to his wife and said, there is the eleventh commandment. And Paul says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels on unawares. You don't know who might come calling at the door. Yes, there are vagabonds and crooks and criminals, and all the rest of it come to your door, and you hold them all at bay, but let us not mistake someone for a crook who may be in need of some hospitality. Paul here is referring, of course, to Genesis 18. Abraham saw three who came to his tent. Turned out one of them was God. He spoke to him. You also have the example in Judges 6 and in Judges 13. But the example ultimately is Hebrews 12, 22. You come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Paul is setting before you the delectable, possibility of giving hospitality 
to remarkable people. In other words, God places a high value on the position of hospitality. You say you believe in God. You say you know God. But does it extend to your kitchen table? Of course there are limits. Second John 1.10 tells you there are some persons you most definitely exclude from your table. But hospitality amongst the Lord's people is a thing of value. And it's not that the Lord's people all have a sweet tooth like myself. It's not that they all want a three-course meal. Sometimes it's just enough for the chair, a smile, a coffee, maybe even a biscuit thrown in. Sometimes that's all they need. It's the hospitality that matters. Sometimes, of course, we say, oh, I couldn't invite so-and-so to my house because it's a mess. Well, because my husband keeps it a mess and I try to keep it tidy. And, you know, everything's everywhere. Old place is upside down. I trust we never go into a house, take a look around us, and think, isn't that a bit of a mess? Hope you don't run your finger along the mantelpiece and say, oh, well, they don't clean this house too often. It's the hospitality that matters. The fellowship. Do you know God? Well, if you have a roof over your head and a table to sit at, just make use of it. Thirdly, verse 3, affinity. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. The duty here is remember. It's a command, again, are a series of commands. So this is a command. Christians are to be mindful of others. And I said that deliberately because in Hebrews 2, 6, what is man that thou art mindful? The same Greek word is translated as such. Remember, be mindful. So the first thing you have is the duty. Remember, Secondly, the objects of the duty. First of all, them that are on bonds. In other words, the prisoners. Second, them which suffer adversity. Those who are being persecuted. You think of Hebrews eleven twenty-five of Moses choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in, in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. The objects of our duty, them that are prisoners, them that are persecuted. You know, if the day ever comes when our culture becomes so evil that you find yourself thrown in prison, you would hope 
that Christians in other parts of the world are doing exactly this, remembering you. It could happen. And if they are in prison, go visit them. If they're persecuted, stand up for them, speak out for them. I suppose if there's one thing we need in our culture, and that is to hear the voices of Christians being heard, the media will not want to, want to hear you. They'll want to close you down. But at least if you have a voice to express your affinity with believers who are in prison and others who are persecuted, Third, there's the motivation. What will motivate us? He tells you, as bound with them, as being yourselves also. In other words, there is the affinity to place yourself not in their shoes, but to place yourself alongside them. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. So not only were they being persecuted, but they stood beside those who were being persecuted as well. So if they weren't being persecuted directly, they ended up being persecuted because they stood with those who were. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, because you sided with Christians, because you sided with Christ, because you spoke up for Paul, the Romans came and robbed you. They took your possessions. They impoverished you, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. You have an inheritance no state can take from you. The state can take your house tomorrow. We hope they don't, but they could. The state could turn around and say, well, we didn't like your opinion on contemporary issues. We want to silence you, so we're going to come to your house, we're going to eject you, we're going to throw you out in the street, and we're going to sell your house, and we're going to keep the money. The state has the power to do that. Because all they have to do is send in the army. And well, that's it all finished, isn't it? In five minutes, you're out in the rear. The motivation to stand with those who are imprisoned and persecuted. You see then what Paul here has done so wonderfully, so skillfully and brilliantly. He takes you in verse 27 to 9, or in this section, he takes you to the foot of Sinai. 
And he says vertically, look up to the top of Sinai. God is a consuming fire. Now turn sideways, horizontally, and look at those beside you and proceed. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. Remember them that are in bonds. If you look up, he says, you need to look sideways. You can't just look up and say, isn't God awesome? He says the second part is verses 1, 2, and 3. If you have understood 12, 29, you must follow through chapter 13, 1 to 3. Here are three simple things all of us can do. Children might say, well, what can I do? You know, sometimes children write a little card. They give it to someone. And that person maybe has never received a card in years. And it's the first one they've got. And they said, that is so encouraging. So thrilling. That a child wrote a card. He said, dear Mr. or Mrs., this is from me to you. It doesn't require a whole lot, but children can do it. Read as adults, like as adults, you can do verses 1, 2, and 3. Well, let's come to some points of application. First of all, the awkward question. Is our Christianity theoretical or real? At the foot of Sinai, you will say, of course we believe this. Of course, without a shadow of a doubt, we subscribe to God as a consuming fire. Paul comes next and says, well, I am delighted with your answer. But what about kindness, hospitality, and affinity? How is that going for you in your life? How is that working out for you? Are you doing all of this? In other words, a glimpse of Sinai means we must will to be kind. We must will to be hospitable. We must will to be empathetic. We must be resolved to do all of this. Christians don't deal in theory. We deal in theology and practice. And it's called experimental reformed theology. We hear and we do. It's interesting the word for disciple. There are two different words for disciple. And the one word that the Savior uses for disciple is the one that means they hear and they do. They're not hearers only. Secondly, the great example of Christ. The great example of Christ. Isn't it fascinating the Lord did all of this? 
In his love for sinners, let's take the three verses. In his love for sinners, what do we read? Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Nothing interrupted the Savior's love for us. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. Can we not let brotherly love continue? The Lord has loved us. Loved us to the end. Secondly, in his hospitality, what do we read? Luke 15, this man receiveth sinners. He eateth with them. Sometimes we have guests at our family table. One or two may not have washed for a while. And we encourage them to make use of the shower. They may not have changed clothes for a while. And we say, I have some clothing. Would you like to put it on? I think it's your size. I don't intend wearing it anytime soon. But I think it would look great on you. We talk to them of heavenly things. They have a clue what they're blaring about. They get up and they say, thank you for the food and the clothes, and I'm off. But you've sown the seed. Haven't you? This man receiveth sinners. If the Lord only accepted the middle class, not a lot of people, he would not have received. If he only accepted the nobility and the aristocracy, well, I think, Looking around me, that rules out pretty much all of us. Maybe one or two of you may not be ruled out, but I think it rules out pretty much all of us. You receive the sinners. If the Lord just received the educated, you know, you've got to have a degree, a first-class honours degree at university. Well, how many of us have that? <coughs> you only receive people with a certain postcode. And there are some very postcodes in our country, you know, the Gold Coast of one, one or two other places. But if that's the only people the Lord received, very few. But he received sinners. That's us. And then his affinity, well, what do we read in Hebrews 2.17? Those wonderful words where the Lord has Set out for us, if I can get it quickly enough. Hebrews 2 17. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. The Lord has done it. Can we not follow the Lord in doing it too? Oh, he has done it in a far grander measure. But aren't we to follow the Lord even in these simple, basic things? Christ did so much for us. Are these three things too much for us to do? I trust you, sir. No, preacher. We can do that too. May the Lord bless these words to your